0: You know, they've done things like banned protests. You know, they've really eroded parliamentary scrutiny. They have handed over extraordinary amounts of power to the police um, and allowed police to access um, contact tracing data too. So just from a human rights and civil liberties perspective here, um, we can never take this situation for granted. We can never rest on our laurels and and accept the way that it's been because, frankly, um, human rights and civil liberties... Are not, are not tradable commodities. They're things that have to be protected at all times.
1: Welcome to The Pin Factory, the Addams With Issues podcast. My name is Matthew Lash, and I'm the Head of Research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'm joined by my co-hosts and our Head of Programs, Daniel Pryor, and Mark Johnson, Legal and Policy Officer at Big Brother Watch. In this week's episode, we're going to be discussing vaccine passports, online censorship, and looking back at a year full of lockdowns.
2: I think it's worth, before we get into the main podcast, just getting a bit of background on Big Brother Watch, if we can, Mark, just for the benefit of our listeners who maybe don't know uh, the background of Big Brother Watch, what sort of activities and work you do and what you focus on.
0: Yeah, so we're um, principally a a civil liberties um, campaigning organisation. We're sort of fighting for a a freer future and um, in the past... We've been involved in, in campaigns around issues of civil liberty, uh, surveillance and other such issues. Um, and um, of course, a lot of work that we've been doing over the last year has been on the kind of rights and civil liberties uh, element of the pandemic and how it's affected all of our lives.
2: Yeah, I imagine it's been a particularly busy uh, recent year for you with the, the pandemic. But obviously, I've, I've been familiar with Big Brother Watch's work for, for several years. Years now. In fact, when I first started getting into the kind of libertarian and, and liberal movement, um, Big Brother Watch is one of the first organisations that I came across doing some really, really interesting work on surveillance specifically, which is something that I've kind of had uh, a lot of changes of heart about over the years and kind of flipped my position multiple times. Maybe we can get on to that uh, slightly later in the podcast. But for now, uh, we move on to our first section on vaccines passports. <music> Boris Johnson has announced a review into so-called COVID status certificates for domestic use to help businesses reopen uh, COVID status certificates, basically being a euphemism for for vaccine passports here. Uh, and just to start off, I guess, Matthew, uh, would you say that vaccine passports at a kind of an inevitability now. It seems like something that a lot of governments are looking to, to bring in, not least the UK's one.
1: Look, I think what we can be pretty certain about is that when it comes to international travel, vaccine passports, um, uh, and certainly an inevitability, uh, I think a lot of countries are going to expect if you're going to enter their country that you've had a vaccine. Uh, and therefore, just like you do for yellow fever, you um, to enter certain countries or, or come back from certain countries. Um, you need to have proof of your vaccination to, to show that you're not spreading it. Um, I, I think some kind of system along those lines um, is, is almost certain and, and the the UK government's accepted that. And I think for a lot of governments, that's, that's going to be their way forward if they want to allow in tourists or business travellers or kind of reconnect the world um, after the pandemic. I think when it comes to the domestic issue, I suppose this is where... Uh, this idea of COVID status certificates are uh, and the government's looking at this idea of having kind of some kind of interchangeable system where you can either show you've had a recent negative COVID test or you can show that you've been vaccinated. Um, I think that's probably more likely than not Uh, because as soon as, and and the government's kind of already signed on to a bunch of contracts already to with potential developers of apps. Um, If the government gives you access to your, um, own health data, which I think there's a kind of moral case that you should be able to access your own health data and prove whether or not you've had a vaccine. I think a lot of businesses are going to want to do vaccine passports to to try to keep their patrons safe. And and I suspect most people will be willing to play along with that just to be able to get life back to normal.
2: And I guess, Mark, just for a bit more background on this, I we've heard recently over the past couple of weeks that ministers are not really very likely to be introducing a government-directed COVID passport scheme. Is that still something that that seems to be the case? And actually, this looks like it's going to be more individual businesses that are focusing on setting them up. Or actually, is there a concern that the government could still bring in um, government-mandated vaccine passports here?
0: It's it's an area that the government have really kind of flirted with since the very start of the crisis. I think Matt Hancock first mentioned the idea in some form in April of last year. And as I said, it was something that that, that came up and, and would disappear again uh, in, um, in in the autumn when the government were talking about Operation Moonshot and the mass testing programme. Um, it was suggested that there could be some kind of immunity passport incorporated into... Um, into that plan of course that was later shelved and in recent weeks we've heard um, time and time again that the government won't be introducing uh, a vaccine passport there'll be no immunity passports in fact one conservative politician went so far as to say that we're not a papers carrying country and of course um, as we heard when the prime minister announced his roadmap map um, mm-hmm. uh, only a few days ago uh, this is now something that they're actively looking into so um, mixed messages but but um, it's something that they're 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 certainly looking into now and um, something that we have to really be very careful about because the direction of travel that we could be heading towards is is one that could um, create a very invasive system of of health segregation and and could lead to some discrimination too
2: yeah i guess that comes down to the million dollar question here which is whether the government should um, kind of outlaw vaccine passports for domestic use in terms of Actually, preventing private businesses from doing it. Um, And obviously, you know, the the broader question of whether there should be a a government directed scheme. I know you mentioned the the kind of risk of health discrimination. And one of the points that I found quite interesting here is that how it interacts or how vaccine passports would interact with vaccine hesitancy among different groups. So, uh, if you look, for example, uh, uh, black and minority ethnic people in the UK tend to, on average, have higher vaccine hesitancy than the average population the way that even kind of private vaccine passports could manifest obviously would have very specific effects on on specific groups in uk society now i imagine the answers on a postcard here when it comes to big brother watch's stance on um on government directed vaccine passports i'm interested in kind of what the the case against them is from from a civil liberties perspective but also i'm interested mark in what your thoughts are on if private businesses were to start kind of trying to bring these in, whether you think that's a kind of separate question or whether you think that they're both pretty much the same.
0: I think from a civil liberties perspective, um, it, it's helpful to take a step back and to, to to put this into some kind of context. I think it was around 15 years ago, um, possibly slightly more, that the, the Blair government uh, first tried to introduce um, ID cards in the UK. And this is a particularly controversial idea in, in the same vein that that conservative politician that I mentioned had said that we're not a papers carrying country. It's something that we've never really entertained in the UK before. And the the policy was not particularly popular uh, and was, was of course, like later shelved by the coalition government. And it does feel to me that this is this, you know, vaccine passports would effectively be ID cards through the back door only to a certain extent that they're much more invasive because it, it links in your your own personal health data, and would would involve data sharing between multiple authorities. So there's a real kind of invasive privacy element here. It's we're not we're not only talking about a system of ID. We're talking about you know public facilities having knowledge of of a, of a particular aspect of your health data. Talking about the the private um, element, I think this is this this there are many problems here as well. I mean, we we know that there are a number of reasons why somebody may not take the vaccine. Pregnant women are unable to. Um, you've also got people with underlying health conditions, um, as well as people with religious and philosophical um, beliefs which may make them hesitant to, towards taking it. Uh, I think we have to be very very careful that, that you know that any kind of measure, whether it's public or private, that it, it could well discriminate against these people and. There's also, you know, more broadly, um, this this consideration of necessity. What is the necessity for this measure? I mean, we know that uptake has been very high. If the government are trying to prolong that, um, you know, support uh, and enthusiasm for taking the vaccine, I, I can't see how this would help. I can only see a situation whereby that, that might actually, you know, that level of support may be hindered by what is effectively coercion via the back door.
1: In a sense, I think the complexity of all this comes down to this point about what data, what information does the government already have on us? Um, And the reality of it is because the UK has a nationalised health system, the government actually does know um, in our NHS records whether or not you're someone who has has had the vaccine or not had the vaccine. So then the subsequent question to that is, um, does the government uh, and does the NHS allow us to have access to that information? Now, I'd I'd argue that we should have access to that information and that um, we should, if we so choose, in a private setting at least, um, I'd be uncomfortable with the government trying to do it other than perhaps for international travel, but at the very least in a private setting, um, that if I want to show my NHS record or an element of my NHS record without necessarily even having to identify myself um, to that other person, but uh, there's almost only really technological ways to do that, um, where you could confirm your, the fact that you've had a vaccine without it necessarily um, being your name or information in order to... Um, transact in some way to go to a you know, theatre that isn't socially distanced so go to a um, sports game or, or whatever else it, it may be. Um, I, I do take your point that it, it is in some ways discriminatory. And I, I think, yes, that, that is in fact the case. Um, it, it, is, it is meant to be discriminatory. Um, I, I don't have a strong philosophical objection, though, to private individuals or private businesses choosing who they do and don't do business with. Um, which, which makes me not sympathetic to the idea per se of vaccine passports as some kind of permanent solution to anything. Um, but as long as it's interchangeable, and I think you're right, it is something that can't be introduced straight away, partly because not everyone can even access vaccines at the moment. Um, I also take your point quite well that this won't necessarily encourage confidence in vaccine and, and vaccine taking. Uh, but on the other hand, though, I, I I can't think that it's a particularly terrible idea if we want to move towards some kind of relative normality. Um, it's, it is a difficult one, though, in terms of uh, people who can't have it. I think people who are with underlying conditions, generally speaking, will um, be able to access the vaccine. You're right, pregnant women can't have the vaccine at the moment, but I suspect that will change as the proper safety tests are done. Um, if it's that, or kind of take a rapid test, then the discriminatory factor isn't particularly strong there. Because if the alternative of that is everyone has to take a rapid test constantly in order to be able to do things, at least while we're trying to minimise the spread of COVID, to minimise the chance of mutations that end up spreading um, back through the population, Uh, it doesn't seem like the worst thing to do in the short run. I I don't even know if businesses will end up taking it up. I think it's more likely to be something for for large scale events. If you want to be able to get large scale events back sooner, then this might be useful.
0: I was just going to say, I was just going to kind of um, contest the idea that this could be um, considered to be normal, you know. Matthew, you made a really good point there about how everybody's kind of clamoring to to get their freedom back. I, I don't see um the introduction of a kind of like system of like health surveillance as as freedom. It seems like a kind of contradiction in terms to me. You know, we people really, really want this situation to end. We've had restrictions on our lives for a year now. We really want them. You know, we really want them to be scaled back as soon as it's safe safe to do so. This is a surefire way of making sure that there is a hangover that that COVID isn't just uh, that COVID isn't just a kind of like crisis in public health, but it's also a kind of like surveillance crisis, which just lasts with us for you know for for a long time after after the pandemic has actually ended. I, I think the other thing to think about as well is you know wh- wh- where does this end? I mean. I, I mean, heaven forbid that we have another um, pandemic or any kind of episode like this happen again soon. But do we really want to enter into a world where, you know, your your health status is or what you're able to do in society is contingent on one aspect of your health status or your health kind of your data, what kind of vaccines you've had? It's a really slippery slope. And let's be honest, there's something more behind this than... (laughs) you know than just that meets the eye when it comes to kind of government systems of id it's it's largely about kind of keeping control over the population is is a is a hangover from this period whereby we have to carry a pass or have an app on our phone just to go to the pub or go into a shop is that really freedom i'm not sure
2: so for me i think that the reason i'm a lot more sympathetic to the idea at least of, of private businesses enforcing some sort of vaccine passport um or vaccine discrimination system however you want to phrase it is uh, <laughs> is that i think that you've you've got externalities here that that really do make a difference to how you think about this in in liberal terms so if you're talking about the the concern with a system of health surveillance i don't think that there's there's something inherently liberal about well, there might be something illiberal about the surveillance but it's a measure that is trying to deal with the fact that your health status has a significant impact or could have a very significant impact on other people um, just by your very presence in a particular venue now the kind of justification i guess that is brought out for this is you know nobody should have to kind of be, be forced to be around someone with a contagious deadly disease um, and i see that as as fairly compatible with, with liberal principles myself um i i take your points very seriously about slippery slopes here and you know i think that historically um we have good reason to be concerned about any sort of kind of intervention like this and to what extent it becomes permanent whether that's permanent in you know vaccine passport sense or more broadly it gets transferred into something like national ID cards in the future, or it perhaps paves the way for them to be more, uh, more justified in, in the public psyche and uh, by the government. I think that's all very real concerns. But for me, I'm personally very comfortable with uh with with temporary health surveillance of this sort, because I see it as dealing with an externality. And I, I don't see Dealing with externalities like contagious diseases as, as something that's incompatible or, or opposed to to liberal principles, I think that the kind of the the concerns around it are legitimate, and the, the kind of unintended consequences of it. But kind of evaluating the idea in itself, I'm I'm far more comfortable with it, I think, than uh, than you are, Mark.
1: I just reiterate that that I agree. Uh, with, with Daniel about the concern about national ID cards. And I saw uh, Big Brother Watch had an excellent uh, tweet recently about the kind of post-war ID cards and a and, uh, gentleman who basically ripped up their ID card ended up in court. And that, that was the end of ID cards in the UK. Um, and I think that's quite a proud history um, and, and something that is a genuine concern um, when it comes to any kind of ID system. And I saw recently, not so long ago, that this was apparently one of Dominic Cummings' favorite projects was the idea of a, a national ID card. Um, and the, the possibility that some kind of health ID system um, could turn into an ID card needs to be um, fought against. And I think there, there would be ways to make it so that people can access their health records without that necessarily becoming a, an ID system. Um, and you probably access it in anonymous ways rather than uh, I necessarily linking an individual's name um, to their record uh, in a document or something they can show on their phone. Mark, what I'm interested um, from you is, at what point do you think um, the state would, I suppose, have a role in stepping in to try to prevent um, a kind of private business from asking to see somebody's um, vaccine status? Do do you think it, it should be unlawful for a pub to say, you know, have you been vaccinated or show me some proof from an app that you've been vaccinated? Or do you think people should not be able to have access to that information so that there can't be an app that says that they've been vaccinated? Um, Do you see that all as uh, kind of dystopian and therefore we we need to stop it in order to avoid the risk of an ID card?
0: I I honestly do think that we need to to stop it. Um, I mean, part of the reason for that is because I think any kind of like private systems are likely to suffer from um, accuracy and are probably more likely to discriminate I, I think that there would be serious problems with uh, with how such a system worked um I think also just going back to a point that Dan made about kind of you know taking factoring in externalities and and you know protecting the public at large, one thing that 's not totally clear yet is the extent to which the vaccine prevents transmissibility. Uh, there are some studies that have been undertaken there's some pretty good early signs, but it 's not totally clear. Yet, yeah, the main thing that anybody could do to protect themselves is to get the vaccine themselves. And um, if 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 the vaccine, you know, if it if it, if it doesn't, if it's ultimately it was it was implemented to protect the individual who receives the to, who receives the jab. Uh, if if transmissibility is in question, then what what Dan was saying about being in a pub and 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 having an obligation to protect others is it, it might not even be the case in in practical terms anyway. Um, but yeah, just going back to, to, to what you're saying, Matthew, I mean, um, the, the, the worries on both, ha- on, on, you know, in both, on both sides, whether it be a, a state, uh, operated vaccine passport or private sector, ultimately, as I said before, it's, it's not going to return us to normal and it's going to change. It, it would, it would really change the way that our lives worked and kind of take this, this episode from being a very, very, you know, difficult year of restrictions and impositions on our civil liberties to, to really becoming a kind of Black Mirror episode where we can't even go to the shops without, you know, declaring information about our own, our own public health records.
2: Yeah, I, I am kind of aware that when I defend vaccine passports, then I kind of becoming the, oi mate, have you got your, your vaccine license every time you you know go to the shops for a pint of milk or something, I can see the Black Mirror scenario playing out that way. Um, but I think we'll leave it there for, for that first section and, and move on to our second topic for today, which is the increasing online censorship that is going on both in the UK, the US and around the world. <music> The government is pushing ahead with plans to introduce a new regime to tackle online harm, something that we've discussed on this podcast uh, several times, uh, while now increasingly raising concerns about companies removing accounts and content. The clearest and most recent example is most likely being Donald Trump's Twitter account. And uh, in the UK, we have Talk Radio YouTube page being removed, something I was particularly aggrieved at myself. Um, I guess just to, to kind of start off with you, Mark, um, are the government's goals here of trying to create a, a safer internet but also protecting free speech as they put it in free expression, do you think that they're pretty contradictory or have they, have they got the balance right in their most recent proposals?
0: I think it's a total contradiction in terms when they say that they're looking to safeguard freedom of speech. The proposals in the first instance, as you say, it were to, to make the UK a safe place to, to be online um but the 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 plans the bill with the proposals that they're looking to bring forward um in principle uh, would create a greater level of censorship on the internet um the model effectively is a kind of accountability mechanism for platforms it's saying that if you have illegal content on your platform you'll be you know reprimanded but what they what they what they then also go on to do is to say that if, if sites have what they, discuss, what they describe as legal but harmful content on their sites, they will also be reprimanded for, for that. Now, what this creates is a kind of like two-tier system whereby there are certain things that you could say offline. There are certain things that you could assertions that you could make or things that you could talk about, which would be p- permitted offline. But if you said them online, they'd be prohibited. And I think this is really a really, really like, dangerous and slippery slope. <laughs> the rule of law has to be applied online, yes, but what you can say offline should not be banned online too.
2: Yeah, it's uh, the kind of discrepancy between the two is, is one of the things I find most uh, most obviously objectionable uh, about the, the online harms white paper legislation, just creating almost, a, you know, an alternative set of laws for, for cyberspace. That seems to me like a completely ridiculous notion, something that uh, is just not, it, it's its not liberal, it's not sensible, it's not in keeping with British traditions when it comes to the rule of law. Um, I guess, Matthew, what what are your kind of thoughts on, on this? You, you've obviously been a, a staunch opponent of some of the proposals in the online harms white paper in the past.
1: Yeah, I I think that Mark's absolutely right here. And the the central contradiction in what the government's trying to do is is so blatant that it's hilarious. Um, And the history of it more or less seems to be that the the current government, the the Johnson administration, has picked up this policy that's had years and years of development. It kind of dates back to a green paper under David Cameron and then a white paper under Theresa May. And now they're trying to swear all these, these absolutely hilariously contradictory goals. They're trying to claim putting in place a duty of care on tech companies to, to deal with both legal and in potentially cases legal, so-called legal but harmful speech will not encourage excessive censorship or excessive content removal, whilst at the same time also trying to put a, a legal mandate on companies to protect free speech. Um, and it's it's totally, it's it's the the absurdity of it. And and it's almost hilarious that the government thinks it can somehow uh, achieve both of these goals Um Simultaneously, well, what I find as well, though, is an extra part of these these latest proposals are the fact that they're going to exempt journalists from scope. So, if you're a journalist, if you post something on a platform, um, you have an additional free speech right, um, and that you can't be impacted uh, by the parts of the proposals, the, the the harms parts of the proposals in terms of censorship. But what that effectively means is the government is admitting in that very structure of what they're proposing, that what they're putting forward could lead to censorship and therefore journalists need to be protected from that. And bizarrely, journalists get to be protected, but us who are not technically classed as journalists, although who knows how they're going to possibly define what is a journalist, um, gets protected. It, it's, it's just so manifestly insane and contradictory and full of holes that I just... Like, gasp at the idea that this could ever actually be something that's legislated. I think they're no doubt going to try, um, and it's going to have hilarious consequences as a result.
2: Yeah, I'm certainly, I mentioned in the previous section, I'm perhaps more comfortable with discrimination when it comes to COVID uh, domestic passports. I'm very uncomfortable with the idea of pro journalist discrimination. That's <laughs> possibly the, the most sickening phrase <laughs> I've ever heard. I, I'm being interested in that. In politics, but of course, even you know, even if you are a big fan of journalists, um, you know, I, I don't mind some of them myself. But, um, <laughs> some of my best <laughs> friends are journalists. Yeah, there there are exceptions. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I still think you've, you've got to find this completely ridiculous. At the end of the day, you've got definitional issues, like you mentioned. How on earth are you going to find whether someone's a journalist, whether someone maybe on on Twitter who claims to be a citizen journalist and, and uh, works for for a particular blog site or something like that, do they count, do they get these special free speech rights? The the other thing for me that that kind of is I find most frustrating, I think, about this online harm's discourse is how it came to be such a big issue. Um, and I see kind of two real two real drivers for this. The first is just general skepticism of, of big tech and this being targeted. I mean it, it's not just targeted at big tech, it's going to affect everything from facebook to mumsnet forums and and your you know your more niche online forums as well it, it's not just targeted on then but but the second thing that i see here is kind of politicians honestly getting peeved that they get so much criticism online now <laughs> call, call me a cynic but I, I i definitely see how you know being a politician on twitter and getting constant abuse online is going to eventually make you uh Sour somewhat towards um, maintaining free speech and free expression online, and you know, this is partially a, a you know a trite point I recognise, but you do see in select committee hearings in in Parliament very regularly MPs will talk about the kind of nasty comments that they've received online, which are nasty um, in many cases, and in some cases aren't even justified either. So it's really bad stuff, but. I I honestly think that that this has played a role here. It's partially just MPs are very sceptical of big tech um, and they're also sick of people criticising them forthrightly uh, or perhaps offensively whenever they tweet something out on Twitter. Maybe that's uh, a simple take, but I think it's one that has some merit.
1: I think the world would be a much better place if MPs, rather than getting home in the evening or Finishing up their day of work and opening Twitter and reading their replies, they just stop. They just stop doing it. They just stop reading those replies.
2: They that, have that's cl- depressing Depressing to hear from a tech optimist such as yourself, Matthew. It's like, well, the one exception I have to thinking that the internet has made the world a much better, freer, richer place is actually politicians, and they should just be maybe banning politicians from the internet. Like, I again, think again, that would be better liberal. for everyone. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but no, I, I actually thought about this at one point, uh, recommending it to Twitter that they. Uh, censor the replies that politicians receive so they could only see people saying positive things about them. And that if, if because politicians obviously have brittle egos, really like they cannot handle criticism. Um, they're, they're so focused on their self-image that that they really cannot take it. Um, and if you just hid that all from them, I suspect a lot of the pressure about trying to, um, force tech companies to, to censor content would go away. I mean, it is worth acknowledging, and, and I do have people who are involved in this space who will lash back on me and say, there is a lot of disturbing content um, on the internet. There's uh, plenty of it that ends up being um, on social media sites. There's a lot of self-harm content. There's a lot of terrorist content. There's a lot of um, child pornography. I think it's worth highlighting here that the government's proposals will not do very much to actually tackle those very serious issues. Um, the, the, the social media firms are probably world leading in trying to get rid of that content off their platforms and it's very difficult to do and just creating more legal responsibilities when they already have um, to remove content that is unlawful won't actually make <laughs> change it very much um, and in fact there's an argument that it potentially creates problems particularly for investigative journalists for example who depend on terrorists uploading content, if that content disappears too quickly or if the abuse um, disappears too quickly, uh, then you can't actually catalogue and record it for potential future legal proceedings. The biggest issue here, though, is the fact that the harms that are going on online often involve another individual causing um, harm to a, a, a third individual. It's it's not uh, a second individual, sorry. It's not about the third party. It's not about the platform. And often the, the, the problem is that the government's very much shied away from actually enforcing the existing law online, it's just become too difficult in a way to actually deal with all the crime that potentially happens online. It's just there's a lot of things going on online and there's inevitably a lot of crime online and the police aren't very well resourced to deal with the serious crimes that happen on the internet. So instead, the blame is getting focused in on the tech companies as if they are to blame for what other people are doing. Because there is ultimately someone out there, if it is an unlawful act, that is breaking the law um, and should potentially face legal consequences for that. But it's very hard just because there are so many reports and so much content and so much going on online um, for the police to be able to deal with it with their current resources.
2: So you mentioned the, um, the kind of regulatory enforcement of this. Uh, and we've, of course, got Ofcom as the kind of designated regulator, and maybe we can chat in, a bit later in the section about whether they're the right people to, to do this if if we are to have it at all. But one of the things that, one of the consequences here is that kind of legal but potentially harmful speech, the government's clarified that that includes some forms of, of disinformation or, or misinformation. Uh, and in fact, they believe that most disinformation and misinformation will fall into that category of being legal but potentially harmful and the kind of conclusion of that is that Ofcom in particular cases will have the power to to intervene um, in stopping the spread of disinformation. Now I'm I'm not usually one to kind of compare the current situation to dystopian visions but I think in this case it's fairly. justified right uh, uh the, the ofcom regulator cracking down on legal but potentially harmful misinformation uh, would you agree with that mark do you think that ofcom is the, the best place for people to be the regulator here if we are to have a regulator at all or, or actually is this just helping make sure that uh, citizens of the uk aren't exposed to, to dangerous, dangerous um, wrong speak?
0: Honestly, I'm, I'm quite agnostic to, towards who the regulator is because I actually think that the model is is, is fundamentally flawed. That's my primary concern. I mean, uh, the model lo- is largely based on a law that was brought in in Germany called the NETS-DG law, which is uh, similarly, as I described before, a kind of accountability mechanism for platforms to remove content that is deemed illegal within a certain period of time. But this has been widely criticised by human rights organisations, including Human Rights Watch, because what, what ends up happening is the platform has become incredibly incredibly trigger happy and start taking down content through fear of being reprimanded retrospectively. So I think the model is flawed and um, fundamentally. And then that's not even getting into as we've as we've already mentioned the, the legal but harmful content which they also want to be removed from the platforms. As you said when it comes to things like mis and disinformation, their inclusion is is really, really concerning because it's very difficult to actually define these concepts. What is disinformation obviously the the idea behind disinformation is that it's kind of willfully spreading falsehoods but i mean where do you where do you draw the line uh, d- Does this affect free and fair political discourse i mean uh, far be it from me to suggest that politicians could ever run fast and loose with the truth, but are there is their speech included in this too? Might we see the censorship of, of mm-hmm. politicians making kind of like wild assertions? It's a really slippery slope and it's really difficult to define as a concept. And I'm very worried that basically what we'll end up doing is effectively policing free and fair speech.
1: Mark, be careful if you start talking about censoring politicians that you might actually increase support for this policy. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, that, that is what happened in, in Germany, right? When they, they brought in similar sort yeah. of laws, you did have German politicians... Um, being censored, people who who ironically enough supported the initial introduction of the law. And I have to say, I took a, a certain amount of satisfaction in that. Would you, would you call it Schadenfreude
1: by any chance?
2: <laughs> yeah, that's quite a good term for it, Matthew, I agree. There's uh, <laughs> always a German
1: term for everything. I, I think just digging down onto this disinformation point in particular, um, one of the great absurdities of the, the recent government approach on this has been the government was very concerned when... Um, and albeit it was temporarily, but the, the talk radio page got suspended from YouTube. Now, that got suspended uh, from YouTube under a particular YouTube disinformation policy that was designed around the pandemic. that Effectively said, if you were to disagree with uh, the received wisdom, the consensus put forward by the World Health Organization, uh, you could be removed from their platform. Now, ironically, the government's own final response to the white paper links to that specific YouTube policy as good practice. So the government has said this policy is great practice, but when the actual consequences of that policy are bared out in reality... Uh, they suddenly realise potentially that there might be some negative implications for free speech. I think this comes back to the incoherence in the government's policy um, and the, the the fundamental inconsistencies of it. And, and I you know I hate to say it, but let's be honest here, the government's concerned because um, its own team, its own side of things is starting to get censored. And I think that's what they should be concerned about to some extent, because inevitably it's probably going to be a lot of conservative, um, potentially some libertarian voices that are censored under these social media firm policies, because um, whether, you know, you, you like it or not, and whether, um, for, for good or for evil, these companies tend to have a more progressive worldview. So that, that's who they're going to clamp down on. That, that's that's going to be the reality of it, more or less. Um, but it's kind of disappointing that the government's only really started noticing this now, that, that potentially the social media firms are excessively censorious. And they've noticed it at the precise point they're putting forward policies that will make that whole problem worse, um, rather than t- trying to push in the opposite direction, p- potentially. I'm not that I necessarily think that the government should have too much of a role in terms of telling social media firms what they can and cannot host on their platforms. I'd just like for them to particularly stop telling them to be more censorious.
2: Right. I think like a lot of these you know, private companies who have decided to implement, say, dis- anti-disinformation measures and some of the ridiculous consequences of that, as we saw with talk radio, that is the chilling effect in action when it comes to government threats or, or action in some cases in, in different countries for for these sort of um, online harms regulations that I, I can't imagine YouTube deciding to introduce the, their sort of disinformation policy in isolation um, and by themselves if it wasn't for the obvious pressure on them to kind of be seen to be doing more on this sort of issue. Just just a final kind of thought before we move on to a final section on this disinformation point. It's not just about censorship here. If we think about what would have happened if these sort of laws were fully in effect in the UK during uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and lockdown, what we could have seen is if you take the issue of masks, for example, the changing consensus around whether masks were effective at um, preventing or reducing transmission we could very easily seen um people being pro pro mask or in some cases anti-mask uh, later on being censored or be, being kind of having their content and their views taken down because it was potentially contributing to disinformation and that sort of thing is, i think it shows some of the the more concrete consequences that you could get from such such censorship here uh, obviously you know that there's Always going to be negative consequences when it comes to censoring people's speech, but some of the more like, I I guess, well-known justifications for why free expression and free speech is so important, if you look at your your classic John Stuart Mill, is that actually, you know, it has good utilitarian consequences. (laughs) It it tends to be good at at honing in on what is true and what is not, and without free debate, you're not able to to do that as effectively. Uh, And the consequence when it comes to COVID would have been, you know more people dying as a result of not questioning an orthodoxy that turned out to be extremely wrong. And that, you and, know, of the course, Daniel, of
1: and of course, Daniel, the Advertising um, Standards Authority did ban advertisements that were recommending people get masks in March because the official government advice was to not wear masks. Um, another perfect example of this is that in January, the World Health Organization's position until China changed their mind was that there was no human-to-human transmission from from uh, the COVID-19 virus. So if the YouTube had a policy in place in January that you could only express views that are consistent with the World Health Organization, it would have been unlawful until late in- into January to say that um, COVID-19 can transmit from human to human. Um, and I think that just highlights the whole absurdity of depending on these organizations and these so-called authorities that are often replicable, um, rep- sorry, reputable but not always necessarily. And as part of public debate and scientific debate, you should be able to question what they're saying.
2: Well, on that uh, depressing note, but also hopefully a a hopeful one that we'll be able to to move past these ridiculous online harms regulations. I think it's time to move on to the final section of the podcast on a kind of retrospective
1: on lockdowns. It's now a year since Italy became the first liberal democratic country to introduce a lockdown in the face of COVID-19. It was originally labelled, of course, draconian when China started forcing people into their homes and in some cases literally locking the doors and soldering the door frames behind them. Uh, I think that this reflects a quite fascinating kind of transformation in approach we've, we've gone from thinking something was completely absurd and ridiculous to something being the norm um in in many parts of the western world at least in in the short term um I'm interested in you in hear from you I guess what you think might have spurred this transformation in thinking
0: I mean it is a really interesting consideration the fact that that you know as we've heard in interviews from scientists that this is something that they couldn't even Fathom, and within a short period of time, they changed their mind and and very quickly adopted, as you say, a policy which was first donned in in China. I'm, I'm pretty kind of like concerned just broadly about the period that we've had over the last year and the kind of lasting impact that that could actually have on the health of our democracy. The the government's response at times has been has been disproportionate. Some of the things that they've done, regardless of whether you whether you support the idea of a lockdown or or not. Um, some of the measures that they've taken have, you know, have, have, have gone too far. And what I mean by that is, you know, they've done things like banned protests. You know, they've really eroded parliamentary scrutiny. They have handed over extraordinary amounts of power to the police um, and allowed police to access um, contact tracing data too. So just from a human rights and civil liberties perspective here, um, we can never take this situation for granted. We can never rest on our laurels and and accept The way that it's been because frankly um human rights and civil liberties are not are not tradable commodities they're things that have to be protected at all times so just 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 entirely from that perspective um i found it a deeply concerning period and and one which i do genuinely as i said fear will impact on the long-term health of our of our democracy
1: do you, do you think, uh, Mark, that lockdowns are ever justifiable? Or do you think that this is, would ever be an acceptable public health response? Um, perhaps even, though, I guess, the original limited justification, which was to prevent overwhelming of the NHS, or is it still not worth kind of sacrificing uh, civil liberties for that purpose? I don't think I don't think anybody could dispute
0: that the government needed to take hard and fast action. I think it was totally understandable. What I really would have liked to have seen them done is to take a an approach which rather than you know coerce people and punish them for not uh, abiding by a kind of rigid set of rules which have to apply for everyone I would have much rather have seen them uh, take take an approach which really supports people i mean one of the one of the phenomena that we've seen throughout this pandemic is that there's been um really poor levels of compliance when it comes to self isolating that 's often because people can't afford to self isolate because they're on you know Perhaps zero hours contracts or work, which is unstable. They 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 actually genuinely can't afford to take the time out of work, and so compliance levels have been low. Rather than rather than reprimand people for not kind of complying with this, you know, really blunt set of rules, I would have much rather the government had focused more on supporting people on making sure that that compliance for those who actually have the virus is is higher. Um, and that is really not something that we've seen. So, yes, I would have much rather they'd taken a different approach to this, um, but as I said, there are also, it doesn't make you a lockdown sceptic or anything to to have real genuine fears about some of the things that they've done throughout this pandemic, whether it be things like protest rights, whether it be, you know, the way in which they've brought some of these measures about, the lack of scrutiny, or whether it be the way in which they've handed power to the police and, and, and the poor policing that's come with that. You know, I don't think you have to be a lockdown sceptic to be really uneasy about these things and never to and to never settle for them, to never take them for granted.
2: Yeah, I I completely agree that you don't have to be a lockdown sceptic to think that the way that the government uh, went about this uh, could have been much improved, shall we say. One of the things that the, the kind of adoption, the very quick and, you know, easy seemingly adoption of lockdowns um, in liberal democratic countries more broadly, that one of the things that highlighted for me is just how that there is this, this kind of latent authority, or in some cases, not latent authoritarian impulse, not just amongst um, liberal democratic politicians, but also, I think it's fair to say, uh, a large proportion of the general public. I mean, we look at polling on support for lockdowns it has been consistently pro, um, if anything, it's gone up um, in, in some periods quite significantly rather than down. Um, and for me, that that's kind of a double edged sword as someone who is sympathetic to and supports lockdowns as um, as an important public health measure. And I think that they are effective. Um, I think the evidence shows that, that they do work at, at saving lives and reducing the sort of externalities that I was mentioning in the first section, there's you know, there's a worry that, well, actually, that that's going to manifest in various other ways um that aren't very good for for liberals of of any stripes or or any colour whatsoever. Um So I, I guess the worry here is that you've got on the one hand a policy that that you want to be part, or at least in my case, I want to be passed, but a lot of the groundswell of support for that policy is tied up with particular approaches to politics that in other situations, uh, I'd be very nervous and wary of. So it's, a, it's a difficult one to, to kind of square in your head as to, to whether it's a positive overall or a negative and in terms of the, the kind of enforcement mechanisms. And I, I agree with you here, Mark, that we're using a lot of the stick and perhaps not enough carrot, uh, when it comes to encouraging people to to say self isolate, for example, it's one of the reasons why the ASI, despite being a you know free market small state libertarian think tank, was pro things like the furlough scheme, for example, and you know a little bit sceptical perhaps of um, of cutting the, the temporary increases in universal credit too quickly. So you're certainly right there that a kind of a more well rounded liberal approach, I think, would still have some of these more draconian lockdown measures but i think it it would involve more kind of utilization of of positive incentives as well i I guess i'm i'm always been in two minds about things like uh about the trade-off between your kind of human rights on things like the the right to protest and um and the, the kind of public health implications of that because as is mentioned seemingly now on every episode, and I realise it's me mentioning it a lot. I am a utilitarian. Sort, Are you I'm Daniel? Real? This is completely I know, new for me. know I just wanted to reveal that to the world in case anyone realised. Uh, um, it all makes I, sense I think, now. But also, I think even if you're if you're someone that that is primarily concerned with, with rights, um, and you know, you might think that there's quite a good consequences based argument for um, for those rights, but you have to balance rights right if if rights come into conflict you have to have some way of evaluating the trade-off between those and in this case it's the right not to be infected by someone with a contagious disease versus the right to uh, say the right to protest uh, in this particular case and there has to be some heuristic by which you attempt to balance those rights right it's there there is an inevitable conflict that comes in between them and you know one approach is to to kind of say well you know the, the right to to protest for example takes complete precedence over um the right not to be infected by a contagious disease but i i guess i'm interested really in what your thoughts are mark on you know how how do you go about balancing these different sorts of of rights and what do you, how do you prioritize some over others in this case
0: i actually you might not be surprised to take a, an ever so slightly different view in as much as i do think that there are fundamental rights which are inalienable and which which should be which should <laughs> remain constant even you know even even in even in public health emergencies i don't think you measure the success of a democracy in the good times i think you actually measure it in the bad times and when it comes to things like protest rights you have to ask the question okay so the government want to inhibit this fundamental right <laughs> doesn't that defeat the whole purpose of a protest you know if if a protest is only sanctioned at the discretion of the government it almost it almost defeats the, the the entire object of the of the activity I think some of the most um some of the most important protests throughout history have been spontaneous they've come out of nothing they've been grassroots protests we've seen them in you know whether it be you know the BLM movement in the US things like the Arab Spring real spontaneous movements. That 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 weren't controlled by by government permission. I mean, the rights protest has been has has ironically been has come and gone throughout this period. Protest is effectively prohibited now, but during different you know points in the last year, it was allowed with within certain parameters. So you'd have to um, it, there were very strict conditions whereby you could actually hold a protest. This. Totally defeats the kind of object of, of a of a you know the spontaneity of a new movement. Any 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 poor act of government it couldn't be responded to organically because you'd have to wait to apply for all of the necessary paperwork and so on and so forth. Now, when you, if you're conducting a protest, obviously you still have to think about these things. But that the very essence of a kind of spontaneous protest was was repressed completely. And I think that's a really a really dangerous situation. I think people should always have the right to protest. Even, as I said, even in the most difficult times, I think it's, it's the measure of a democracy, how, how well these rights are protected, not in the good times, but in the bad ones.
1: I think specifically on the, the question of protest, I was always pretty uncomfortable with the idea that protests were banned, because if the government's going to do something particularly extreme, and particularly authoritarian, then the very least people should have the opportunity um, to, to protest against that move. Um, and I'm also broadly uncomfortable with the fact that you basically do need permission to protest. Uh, from the police, from the government, at any time, um, and, and that we do restrict the right to protest in a lot of ways. On the other hand, though, um, as we saw with some protests in uh, 2019, they can be quite disruptive on other people. So, I think that's potentially a, a, another issue for interesting issue for discussion. I mean, more specifically, on though the question of lockdowns, I, I first and foremost do see a lockdown as a, a policy failure. And um, the countries that were most successful at tackling COVID is like South Korea or Taiwan. Um, have never had lockdowns. They've had very effective border controls as well as very good um, tracing and testing systems um, that the UK really failed in. And the fact that the UK was aiming not to enter a lockdown and then ultimately had to do one uh, was a huge failure uh, in itself. Um, and, and, you know, we spent a lot of time previously talking about Public Health England and, and those kind of failures. I think the next failure then is the, although it might have been justifiable to do a lockdown, um, and, and I think in terms of not overwhelming the NHS and um, managing to the healthcare system and, and limiting the number of people who die, um, you, you can justify a lockdown. But certainly I think there was something, something wrong with the process behind it. I think Lord Sumpton's work on this topic in particular, um, although he says no lockdowns would ever be justified. Um, I just agree with that point. But in terms of the points he makes about the way the government has used these hundreds of pieces of secondary legislation over the last 12 months, just using... Um, the, the flick of a pen in order to take away liberties under legislation, uh, public health legislation that was never intended for this purpose. Um, and the, the fact that they've been able to to use uh, the system where they lay, um, uh, put forth legislation, so put forth the secondary legislation that then needs to can't, um, be voted on in Parliament for another 28 days. And by the time Parliament's been voting on uh, the lockdown rules, there's already new rules in place. So there's de facto I- impossible for the parliament to scrutinise it. And this is something we're going to have to think about in future, because uh, whether we like it or not, and I'd like everyone else's thoughts on this point, particular point as well, uh, whether we like it or not, I-, I think lockdowns are now part of the public health policy toolkit. But if they're going to be part of that toolkit, they need to be far better scrutinised, um, far, far better um, accountability for the decisions governments are making that, that seems to often have been lost in this process. Um, do, do you think I'm um, down on maybe your thought, thoughts on this first? Potentially, um, do you think I'm too pessimistic when I say that we can expect lockdowns in future for future pandemics? Um, and if if so, what what can we do differently in future? What can we learn from this?
2: Yeah, I think that there's definitely, as you said, it's an established part of the public health policy toolkit now and it's something that for many people I think was unconscionable prior to the COVID nineteen pandemic. It's just something that people hadn't considered as as something that could happen in a twenty first century liberal democracy, you know, with such advancements in science and technology and medicine. But I think if if a d- disease, a contagious disease comes along in the future that has, you know, the appropriate characteristics to to merit a potential lockdown, or whether you agree on that or not, at least if there's a public health consensus and the common consensus that that's the case then no I don't think you are being too pessimistic at all I think that it, it's almost certainly going to happen now and that actually politicians will probably be buoyed by the the large levels of support for this lockdown that they're not going to harm themselves too much in electoral terms by by taking uh, more restrictive measures so the political incentives are, are probably there as well although obviously that you know, remains to be seen in the long term. It might be that this has impacts um, politically that, that just we haven't seen yet. I mean, in terms of what we can do differently, it, it's difficult to to kind of recommend. Obviously, you, you highlighted some of the issues that we have with the kind of, uh, the institutional issues that we have in terms of responding and updating um, lockdown measures and the kind of democratic accountability around that. But short of a kind of real-time democracy, I guess, um, and whether that would, you know, what that would look like remains to be seen. I don't see a way that we can make our institutions that nimble to respond to changing circumstances in a way that's accountable with, without, you know, literally some some sort of um, moving towards uh, o- online kind of updated voting on a regular basis, a kind of ongoing referendum on on whether the lockdown is, is justified or something wrong. Those lines springs to mind. Now, there's th- there there are certainly things we can do, kind of on the margin to to make this a little bit more accountable. Um, I mean, you know, if you, if you look at the start of the lockdown, you had the, the Sage Group were basically unknowns, and there was very little kind of public knowledge and public information about how they. Were appointed, for example, or or how they, they got onto that, or what their backgrounds were. I think part of it has to be kind of making this sort of information more publicly available, so people can more affect the wider population can more effectively scrutinise some of the public health decisions that are made. Um, but I, I guess this this one is probably for for markers as, as well. Like, if you if you're trying to if you imagine you're you're going to have a lockdown, is there a kind of a way of doing that that is compatible with? Uh, democratic processes um and if there is is there a way of making that reactive and responsive enough because i worry that if, if you kind of you've got this trade-off almost between being able to react fast to changing circumstances in uh, a pandemic versus democratic accountability because that sort of accountability can can take some time right um but yeah interesting. in your thoughts on that mark
0: yeah, it's 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 an interesting one. I mean, uh, I found throughout the whole kind of like debate about around lockdowns, the whole thing's always been very binary. You have people who just hate the idea and reject it outright, and then you have people who you know who are really you know promote the concept. And I always think that um, the, the 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 idea of a lockdown is 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 one with with many flaws, and that, that there could have quite easily been a government response which you know tried to tackle some of the issues closing down public spaces um, without the kind of like coercive, coercive, like heavy-handed policing that we've seen as part of it. Um, I think people do underestimate the extent to which the public will do the right thing if they're given, you know, good information. Um, and it's something, it's something that we saw, I mean... I, th- I think there was a, a study undertaken by the University of Chicago, which said that actually the kind of coercive element of, of lockdowns, the policing and the fines and so on, actually really only account for about five to 10 percent of human behavioural change. So you can acknowledge that there's a problem, a public health emergency, which you have to respond to, but you don't necessarily have to, as you as you described before, Dan, go to the stick. It doesn't necessarily have to be your first port of call. We had one week in March where events were effectively closed down and the prime minister had asked everybody to work from home and understandably so I suppose because of fear within a week we were into a full lockdown we never really saw what the impact of 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 a kind of more like supportive and voluntary um, approach would have been and it would have certainly been um, interesting to measure that in public health terms but I think I think I would never ever want lockdowns to be um, a, a kind of like settled measure of, of like a settled kind of response to public health emergencies of this kind because uh, the 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 way in which you know people have been fined i mean at big brother watch we 've been looking at that you know fines that have been issued so many fines have been issued um you know inappropriately so or incorrectly so um i i don 't think we should ever accept this as uh, as as a as a public health measure certainly not in the way that it has been um, and if an episode like this were ever to happen again of course I would want the kind of like rights and liberties aspect to be you know focused on a lot more as you say the difficulty is of course when responding um, to a, to an emergency like this uh, speed is important too but I do think there are a lot of things that the government have gotten wrong and I would have liked to have seen them done differently.
1: I think in retrospect, it is pretty clear, as you are saying, Mark, that people's behaviour started changing before the kind of more authoritarian lockdown was introduced. Um, and you could make an argument that potentially even case numbers were um, declining before the lockdown. Um, whether or not they would have declined subsequently as fast as they did without the more draconian methods, I'm, I'm not sure about it either way. And I, I think we've seen, to some extent, lockdowns still do work, particularly subsequently um, in order to, to reduce transmission, whether or not that's worth the, the other costs to society and, and the economic costs, uh, as well as the, the cost of civil liberties, uh, I think is, is something genuinely up for debate. What I'm kind of interested in, um, and, and we've, we've gone on, this has been an excellent conversation, been going over quite a while, but just as a closing thought, um, I, I saw a recent um, article from, from Dan Hannon or now Lord Hannan, uh, predicting the world would... Uh, on a pessimistic note, emerge from COVID poorer, meaner, and more pinched, more authoritarian. Uh, Dan Hannon's basically making the argument that as people feel more collectively threatened, they're going to demand a more authoritarian state. And I think we've seen a lot of that over the last year. Um, And Mark, I'm I'm sure you've been pretty horrified as someone who works at a a civil liberties um, advocacy group um, about people's kind of openness to a lot of authoritarianism. Um, almost like the, the government can't go harsh enough with lockdowns, and people never really, and there's certainly a set of people never really want them to end. Um, do you share that, that pessimism, or do you think people will go back and, and grab their liberties once this is over, and hopefully over sooner rather than later? Yeah, I mean, I, I, am, I am concerned. I, ha- I haven't
0: read the article, I did see it, I do mean to read it. Um, but um, I, I am concerned that this will have a lasting impact um, on our democracy if i'm totally honest with you um as i said before i fear that that things like vaccine passports if this is something that the government do actually push would just effectively prolong a kind of like crisis a a a, a crisis in our democracy which 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 would go on for longer than the actual public health emergency i do worry i also worry that you know often with with any government response to a crisis when emergency powers are assumed because let's be honest that that is what's happened here i mean the coronavirus act was not necessarily a, a, a an act um based on you know like a response to the public health crisis it was a kind of it was a kind of power grabbing act i do worry that there will be powers that the government hold on to um past this crisis as well and it's something that we saw you know in the in the 2000s with the war on terror and and fears around security that a lot of the the government's responses the governments around the world their responses they actually kind of dug their heels in and some of these measures actually ended up staying with us for a long time it's often something that people in the civil liberties world do worry about is that there's a constant ratcheting of the security or surveillance state that it that it's always growing in that with every kind of crisis or emergency it, it grows stronger still so I, I do think we have to really think about that i mean this this year I hope it's going to be a much better year and that the summer is, is we're going to see restrictions dropped and that people can genuinely reclaim their freedoms but one thing that we really have to be wary of is that, that we that we also scale back the amount of power that the government have given themselves because it, it is extraordinary the amount that they have that they have given themselves and uh, as I said before the kind of the health of our democracy really rests on that
1: Daniel optimistic pessimistic? Uh,
2: I think that I'm I'm A little more optimistic, but only if groups like the Adam Smith Institute and Big Brother Watch, uh, and this is such a a classic answer, actually highlight how government failure has played a huge role in undermining our response to the pandemic as well. So completely take all of your points, Mark, and and agree with them as well. I, I think, though, if we're able to kind of make very clear how much the government has got wrong in its response to this pandemic. We might disagree about the specifics of that, but um, I mean, you know, you kind of eat out to help out spring to mind. There's classic examples, your, your measures on international travel um, and lack of restrictions on international travel. also spring to mind, but there, there's so many more um, as well, you know, reopening schools at the wrong times, um, not closing universities at the right times. The government has shown that, it is very, very bad uh, effectively responding um, to pandemics in many situations. Now, you know, if you're more sympathetic towards uh, general lockdowns as I am, then obviously that's a point in its favour. But I think that people recognise something like eat out to help out as just a really ridiculous, stupid thing to have done. And actually the consequence of that is, Undermining faith in the power of the, the a benevolent government to do the right thing and look after its citizens using uh, you know different sort of measures. So it's possible to take different lessons from this pandemic. I think Dan Han's right that will we'll emerge poorer. I think that will, if things go well, be temporary. I think if uh, Rishi ends up doing things like uh, raising corporation tax after a really bad recession, we might not be so lucky on that one it remains to be seen but in terms of more more authoritarian i think that it, if we make the case i think the correct case that you know that the government can't solve all these problems and actually makes things worse a lot of the time um and also highlight that you know i mean classic big brother watch work on ridiculous fines that have been in issued and imposed during the pandemic as well they get things wrong so often and that should encourage people's latent skepticism in um in the authority of the, the government to do the right thing all the time uh and i think even if you're someone who who's kind of more sympathetic to restrictive measures you can still take heart that people will be uh, particularly skeptical of whether the government is always going to do the right thing so we don't have to end up more authoritarian as a result of this we can have a sensible conversation about specifics um whether specific measures work uh, whether they're justified whether they're appropriately democratic and transparent and accountable or not so yeah a bit more I'll, optimistic. Um,
1: i'll put on a slightly more optimistic message and say that not like that you i'm very uh, you know everything is going to be awesome just trust me and wait um in the sense that if we learn anything from humanity's previous response to pandemics, is it that we're very good at going through these very terrible things and then somehow completely forgetting about them and, and having a raging good time afterwards. Uh, we should remember that the Roaring Twenties came after not only World War One, but even more so after um, the, the first uh, kind of Spanish flu pandemic. Um, and I think people's urge will be uh, to get out there and to celebrate and to party and, and to be open and um, not allow the kind of authoritarianism uh, that we've seen to, to continue. Uh, and that's my kind of, I suppose, wish, some would say wishful thinking, but also um, more optimistic prediction uh, for what comes next. I think we've already seen this when people are celebrating, uh, was it, is it June 22nd, is the, the day currently marked out on the calendar that every everything lifts, um, getting prepared to party. And I, I think that could hopefully be our, our decade ahead, a, a truly roaring 20s um, before us. And I think on that more, more optimistic note, um, thank you very much uh, for listening to this episode of the Adam Smith Institute's Pin Factory podcast. My name is Matthew Lesh. I'm the Head of Research at the ASI. You've also been listening uh, to our Head of Programs, Daniel Pryor, and the Legal and Policy Officer at Big Brother Watch mark johnson uh, please do if you're enjoying the podcast leave a review and subscribe in your chosen podcast provider and tune in again next week for more of the pin factory